0: Hi, this is Walter Koenig, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential, radio talk show about television. Kevin Spiritus will join us in our second era. Kevin Spiritus, the actor known around the world as Dr. Craig Wesley on Days of Our Lives. Kevin Spiritus is also the star and co-creator, along with Michael Slade, of After Forever, the multi-Emmy award-winning digital series that has won critical acclaim for its unflinching honesty in dealing with loss. In an example of life Imitating art, Kevin recently lost his collaborator on After Forever, Michael Slade, shortly after the holidays. Kevin will pay tribute to Michael Slade when he joins us in our second hour. We'll be able to stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we'll begin this hour by playing part two of a conversation that began two weeks ago with Star Trek historian and Gene Roddenberry biographer Mark Cushman. Mark's latest book, These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek, In the 1970s is a three-volume history of Star Trek slash biography of Gene Roddenberry that chronicles the 10-year period spanning the cancellation of the original Star Trek in 1969 through the making and release of Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979, a period during which Gene Roddenberry experienced a lot of personal and professional ups and downs while Star Trek itself became a worldwide phenomenon. These are the voyages... Gene Roddenberry, and Star Trek in the 1970s Volumes 1, 2, and 3 available through jacobsbrownmediagroup.com as well as amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. I got a little confused reading about The Nine, but that's why, but that's why I have you on the program because you can help me sort through all this okay. stuff. Okay, it took a good four years for Star Trek The Motion Picture to evolve from an idea to development to actually being made. And it, right. during one of the down periods, and as we just alluded to, and th- the script that finally was made in 1978, 79, went through many different changes and different drafts and this and that. But at one point, because R- Roddenberry was a, was a professional writer, and because he wouldn't get paid until a movie was made, there were times when he had to put, Star Trek aside and look for work. And one of the things he did was something called The Nine.
1: Yes. Very curious project. And he was approached by a group uh, in New York State who followed UFOs and and believed, as a lot of people do, that UFOs have not only been here and we've been visited, but that they will be coming back uh, and making contact with us when they think that we're ready And they had a channeler who was in communication with the Nine. And the Nine was this group of aliens who were sending messages saying, we need to prepare Earth for us coming back. And one of the things they wanted to do was they wanted the guy who created Star Trek to be hired to write a screenplay about their return, kind of a close encounters kind of a thing, and uh, to kind of just prepare everybody. And they admired Gene Roddenberry. They had been watching Star Trek. <laughs> and, and so they, they liked the positive themes of it, that aliens weren't viewed as monsters, that they were viewed as intelligent creatures to be communicated with. And so this group contacted Gene and asked him to come in and, um, and write the script. And so they sat him down with the channeler, uh, and he asked all kinds of very good questions about who these people were and what they looked like and what kind of proportion they used for their spaceships and all these things and, and how they were going to come back and how contact was going to be made and everything else. And we put in a lot of the, the transcripts yeah. of these channeling sessions, which I found very fascinating. And then he wrote the script, but he wrote a script where he made himself the protagonist. He wrote because They wanted Gene Roddenberry to write a script, so he wrote a script about Gene Roddenberry being contacted to write this movie. And that wasn't the direction they wanted to go in, so it ended up not getting made. But we put in excerpts from the script, tell you all about the story and then how it went along, and he puts in a lot of the stuff about his battles with Paramount, changes the names to protect the innocent, and everything else. But I found it a very fascinating uh, moment in his life that went on for several months while he was waiting on Paramount to find out what they were going to do with Star Trek.
0: Yes, and as Mark just alluded, the transcripts of a lot of those conversations uh, between Roddenberry and the Chandler, uh during his dealings with the Nine are included in Volume 2 of These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, available at dot It was interesting because you mentioned Close Encounters. And uh, because while this is going on, this group that summoned Roddenberry. Apparently, they also summoned Spielberg. Uh, Stephen right. Spielberg was out
1: there for the same on the same mission, allegedly. Yeah, I did interview Spielberg about it, but that's what the information suggests.
0: And yes, yeah, so you 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 leave it for the reader to decide whether. Uh, there's cause and effect between Spielberg being summoned by this group and the movie that eventually was released as Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Very, very interesting.
1: Did, uh, did your hair raise a little bit when you were reading those transcripts? It was a, it was a little creepy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but again, it's as we say, this book is perfect if you if you love everything about the Star Trek phenomenon and you love everything and you want to know in hunger for knowledge and information and want to take as deep a dive as possible.
1: You know, you know what it did for me, Ed, on that, on that level right there, is is I was a teenager and a young adult during the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, you know, eight, six, 17, 18, 20, 21, 22 in there. And everybody I knew was watching Star Trek five nights a week. Everybody I knew loved Star Trek and we couldn't understand why it wasn't coming back. Yeah. And we kept hearing rumors that it was going to come back, but it seemed to be taking forever. And I didn't understand why. And you read these books and you understand why. You see everything that was going on behind the scenes, with Roddenberry, with Paramount, with the aborted attempts and finally success in bringing it back, and why it was brought back in the form that it was. And all the all the deep thinking that went into crafting the, the story for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Uh, about these guys going through a midlife crisis at the same time that the creator of Star Trek was going through a midlife crisis. So it, to me, it was all very interesting, and, uh, and hopefully it's interesting to people who read the books as well, to be able to go inside these rooms and hear the conversations and read the memos and read the transcripts and, and everything else and see the process that it went through to come back and why it took so long.
0: Yeah, to borrow a line from Hamilton, you really do take us into the room where it happened whenever possible in Volumes 1, 2, and 3 of These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s. One of the fun uh, chapters of Volume 2, Mark, is when you talk about uh, Space 1999. I hadn't yeah. thought of this. There are a lot of parallels. Yeah. Uh, structurally, creatively, uh, between Space nineteen ninety nine and Star Trek,
1: more than I realized. Yeah. yeah, any of us watching that show, and and I was, uh, because we were all hungered for Star Trek, and here's the closest thing we could get to a new Star Trek. Not as good in many ways, but uh, but you know, at least it was in that realm. Uh, but you find out in this chapter uh, with the quotes from the people who made Space nineteen ninety nine, and the and again the memos and things of that nature that they were deliberately trying to do as close to Star Trek as they could. I mean, just look at the, the idea that Star Trek, the original series, was, was ma- mainly three people. You had all the other characters, but it was Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, that triangle. And uh, doctor, science officer, and captain. And you've got that same equation in Space 1999. You've got them traveling through the, the cosmos, encountering aliens and strange new life and strange new worlds. And all that stuff, except on Space 1999, they're on the moon, and it's been blown out of its, you know, out of gravitational orbit, and it's traveling at warp speed through the cosmos. And so they said, let's do everything Star Trek did. We'll change it a little bit so we don't get sued, but let's try to make it as Star trek as we can. And, and one of the things I include in that chapter is the reviews. When Space 1999 came out, and you see all the critics comparing it to Star Trek too. And most of them are liking Star Trek better, but they see the comparisons, they make the comparisons, and so forth. So it's definitely entrenched in Star Trek.
0: It's definitely entrenched in Star Trek. One of the reveals for me was how the vast majority of critics embraced Space 1999 when it premiered. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not sure whether cause and effect came into play here. But it seemed like critics changed their mind once Isaac Asimov weighed, weighed in on the show.
1: Yes, uh, absolutely. He wrote a couple reviews of it, and we include passages of those as well as many others. And you know, and you know, they chose Martin Landau because uh, you know he was the guy who was originally supposed to play Spock, and yeah. turn the role down. So there's a fun connection right there. They were going after Star Trek writers. Uh, what nobody seemed to know, but we revealed in the book, is they also contacted Gene Roddenberry to see if he would come in and work on the show. Uh, and when he declined, they then they brought in Fred Freyberger, who had produced the third series of the original Star Trek series. So they they were trying in every way possible to fill the void that had been left by it. And here's another connection, too. This is what made Paramount decide to do Phase Two. They've been trying to develop a movie. They couldn't come up with a script that they liked. Space 1999 premieres, and it's doing very well in syndication as a first-run syndicated series. And so Paramount decided, based on its popularity, maybe we should do this with Star Trek. Forget about dealing with the networks. Let's bring it back, and we're going to do it as a first-run syndicated show. And that's what's Phase 2. And in Volume 2 there, we walk you through all Phase 2 because there were 16 scripts written. It was ready to go. And we give you a a, a very deep breakdown of all those stories, little passages from the scripts, memos from Roddenberry and his staff as they're developing the material and so forth. So you get a real good inside look at the series that never was.
0: These are The Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, Volume 2, 1975, 1977, available in a hardcover as well as an ebook through dot group.com you can follow Mark Cushman on Facebook as well as Mark Cushman.com. Stay with us folks.
1: We'll be right back.
0: couple more questions and then we'll wrap. I want to circle back to something you just said. You mentioned that at one point ITC and Jerry and Sylvia Anderson reached out to Roddenberry to become part of Space 1999. I can understand while Roddenberry turned the job down, but when you think about it, he was still going through this treadmill with Paramount over the development of you know, Star Trek, whether it's as a motion picture or as another television series. And as we mentioned before, he was a working writer. He wasn't getting any money during this development deal uh, unless the movie was made. So mm-hmm. a part of me thinks maybe he should have taken the money because had, had he taken the job, he could have, perhaps he could have shaped 1999 into his
1: image. He, uh, he had problems with space 1999. First of all, it it, it was kind of a rip-off of Star Trek, so why would he want to be involved in that? Secondly, it didn't uh, tell the type of stories that he had been telling on Star Trek. They tried to certain ways, but they they would veer in the direction that he wouldn't veer in. So he didn't really see it as something that he could throw himself into, but I believe his uh, rejection of it he also expressed either in an interview with me or maybe it's in in a memo in there but I remember that uh, he, he said, look, I've got multiple pilots in development. I've got Planet Earth, I've got uh, Spectre, I've got uh, Quester tape, so I've got all these things going on, and Star Trek going on, because we are bringing it back in some form or whatever. So if I get involved as a showrunner, it's going to be on a show that I create. Yeah, you know, I don't want to go work for somebody else. So that's when they put the uh, invitation out to Freddie." Uh, to come in and do it because he had Star Trek credentials and he wasn't looking to create shows he was just looking to produce them to helm to helm them and so he came in and did the second season of space 1999 and what we also learned there is there's a lot of folklore out there that uh, that he ruined space 1999 he's the show killer he ruined Star Trek he ruined all these things it was really an unfair label for Fred Freiberger because first of all he was one of the first producers on wild wild west Mm -hmm. he got that show up and going and when he came in and did star trek it was already decided by nbc that that would be the last season uh they put it in the death slot they were not going to pick it up for a fourth year no matter what uh they just had too many problems with star trek with the edgy uh statements it was making and, and everything else uh... and then when he uh... and and you can't blame him for the fact that the third season wasn't as good granted he wasn't a visionary like roddenberry or gene coon but uh... the budget had been slashed so horribly that the third season was not going to be as good uh, but when he came in and did Space 1999, they only got a second season because he agreed to come on board. It was going to go off the air after one year, but when he said he would come in and produce the second season, they renewed it on that aspect alone. So he didn't kill the show. He got the show a second year. Yeah,
0: he uncancelled the show. <laughs>
1: That's exactly right.
0: <laughs> and the really interesting thing is that a Space 1999 almost was a network show. I mean, ABC came very close to picking it up, but they they would not commit beyond 13 episodes.
1: Yeah, they wanted it. They, they, they gave an order for 13 episodes. But And this is the the reason why Paramount was going to do Star Trek Phase 2 as a first-run syndicated series. Uh, there's folklore out there that the networks didn't want it. That's not true. NBC had been trying to get Star Trek back for three years yeah. at that point. And they kept getting turned down. The reason they took the animated series is because that's the only way they could get it. Uh, because Paramount didn't want to rebuild all the sets unless they had a full year commitment uh, because they, you know, those sets were expensive. So they're not going to rebuild the Enterprise and rebuild it inside and out for 13 episodes. They wanted a full season commitment in order to do it. And what we find out also in Volume 2 is that finally when they decided to do phase two, NBC called and said, we'll take it and we'll give you the full year commitment. We'll give you everything you've asked for. Please give it to us. And Paramount said, no, we've decided we're gonna launch a fourth network. We don't need you anymore. So uh, you find out all this stuff that was going on behind the scenes.
0: Volume two takes you behind the scenes of the period of uh, 1975, 1977, Volume 3 discusses the making of Star Trek The Motion Picture, covers the period 1977-1979. Mark will be back later in the year. We will talk specifically about the making of uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. We'll talk specifically about Volume 3 of These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s. But before we say goodbye, I understand that you have another book coming out, your long-awaited Volume 2 of your Moody Blues book is also coming out in 2021, correct?
1: Yeah, I'm finishing that up now. We just had uh, Voyages of Sea Volume 2 published, which finished out a that two set book. That just came out a couple weeks ago. And uh, I'm finishing up uh, Moody Blues Volume 2, Long Distance Voyagers. And that'll be out in the late spring, early summer of next year. Uh, so I'm currently interviewing uh, a lot of people for that book. I've already written the first draft and revised it. I'm just plugging in some additional interviews. We'll get that off to print early next year, so it'll be out in late spring.
0: Well, we will look forward to that. In the meantime, all of Mark Cushman's books are available through Jacobs Brown Media Group, Amazon.com, other online retailers, Mark Cushman's website, MarkCushman.com. Mark Cushman, always a pleasure to talk to you. Live long and prosper. You too, Ed. Jeffrey Mark will join us later on in the hour to talk about the life, career, and music of Ella Fitzgerald. We hope you stay tuned for that. In the meantime, and in case you missed it, Cy Shermack passed away last week. Cy Shermack, the award-winning producer of such classic TV shows as The Virginian, Ironside Chips, Amy Prentice, and Kolshak, The Night Stalker. We talked about his career behind the scenes in television. We also talked about his career in front of the camera when Cy worked as an actor early and late in his career. We spoke to Cy Shermack shortly after the release of his memoir, The Showrunner, an insider's guide to successful TV production. Among other things, Cy talks about the importance of having a good concept for a TV series, keeping that concept believable, and staying on top of the writing. When we come back, we'll play a clip from our conversation with Cy Shermack from 2018, in which he specifically talks about how he applied that concept of believability when he took over as producer of Chips, and as a result, paved the way for Chips' long, successful run in the 1970s. We'll replay our conversation with Sy Shermack when we come back on TV Confidential.
1: Story Salon is Los Angeles' longest-running storytelling venue. We have live shows every Wednesday in Studio City, as well as solo shows, podcasts, CDs, and several books. Los Angeles Daily News calls Story Salon gemstones of narrative, something new, funny, astonishing. Sunset Magazine says, tales tall, tragic, and tantalizing. All of this makes Story Salon one of the most eclectic entertainment experiences available. You can learn more about us by going to our Facebook page, or by visiting our website at www.storysalon.com. Accredited by Guinness World Records, welcome to Archival Television Audio, Incorporated. A peerless TV soundtrack archive preserving the audio from television's first three decades the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. The golden and silver age of television.
0: For more information, go to atvaudio.com. One more item. Here's something a lot of us have in common. You can now purchase T-shirts, mugs, caps, hoodies, wall clocks, and other gifts with the TV Confidential logo from the official TV Confidential merchandise shop. For more information, go to televisionconfidential.com forward slash merchandise or cafepress.com forward slash TV Confidential